we've found that confidence is the biggest barrier and especially imposter syndrome and it's everybody who Mm. suffers with this I think you know it can be somebody with you look at and you think they've got the best background and the most transferable skills and you know great opportunity and yet totally suffer with this so we work incredibly hard at addressing that head on Hello everyone and welcome to this next series of the VocTech podcast on the EdTech podcast. And this series is all about taking a look at vocational learning technologies and improving opportunity in the workplace. This series is supported by UFI VocTech Trust and we've got loads of great episodes coming up, including a chat in January with author of the book End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Fix It. That's James Plunkett. So I'm very much looking forward to that. But before this week's episode, huge congrats to our podcast partners, UFI VocTech Trust and Century Tech for winning gold at the Learning Technologies Awards for best use of learning data analytics to impact learner and business performance. And uh, UFI VocTech Trust funded projects, including IDEA and the NYA Youth Work Academy, also picked up a silver and bronze respectively. So big shout out to them and also to LAS for winning learning organisations of the year. It was a great night and uh, ended late with a diminishing uh, set of returns as the night progressed, as you can imagine. A quick reminder that if you would like tickets to the Reimagine Education Conference, which runs December the 6th to the 10th online, if you'd like to um, pick up some free tickets, they're worth $300 each. Uh, The EdTech podcast, as a partner of the event, um, has has kindly been given an allocation of tickets to uh, send out to our listeners. So uh, do get in touch um, or if you're on the website for reimagine-education.com, you can use the promo code REJUDGE, R-E-J-U-D-G-E, all in caps, and enjoy the, the show. Okay, this week's episode was recorded live and features everything from how to remove barriers in education, how to boost learner confidence and how to build a use case for tech in learning within a corporate or workplace environment. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this kickoff event for the Week of VocTech, brought to you by UFI VocTech Trust in uh, collaboration with partners including the RSA, the AOC, Alt, and many more. The Week of VocTech is the annual celebration of all things learning technologies to support work based skills. This week, we're going to hear all about uh, creating positive impact for the learners who aren't always uh, well served by the mainstream. So without further ado, let's meet our guests. So first up, we have Mark Baxter. So Mark is the technical director and co-founder for Digital Noughts. Digital Noughts is an immersive learning program and in-system assessment platform for upskilling across industry, including the construction, naval and energy sectors. So welcome, Mark. Hi, Sophie. Uh, Next up, we have Dr. Andrea Cullen, who is lead tutor and co-founder for CapsLock. CapsLock is an online cybersecurity professional training program where you don't pay a penny until you get hired. 
Uh, it's created by university cyber lecturers who wanted to provide something better and more accessible, currently retraining taxi drivers, dancers and stay-at-home dads, among many others, uh, in the world of cyber uh, to fill the skills gap in names like the BBC. And finally, we have Diane Morgan, Director of Talent for Zinc VC. Zinc brings together the brightest minds to build and scale a brand new way to solve the most important societal problems faced by the developed world. So welcome, Diane, and welcome, Andrea, as well. And why I brought these particular guests together is that there are some common themes among them all. So in some capacity, their work all involves improving access to knowledge and skills. And put another way, that might mean removing barriers and bureaucracy and also supporting learners who have not gone down the the perhaps traditional pathway. So we will kick off, we'll get straight into things. Um, Mark, let's start with you. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about what you do at Digital Noughts? Yeah, no problem. Um, So Digital Noughts, we provide end-to-end solutions for the enterprise. Um, So basically that means we help support uh, all the, the, the difficult questions when it comes to adopting XR solutions. And by XR, I mean VR and augmented reality solutions, which I'm sure at this point most people are probably quite familiar with or have at least heard of at some point. So our mission as a business is to really bring that into companies who don't know how to do it. They don't know where to start. They've never approached it before and really bring it in a meaningful way. Um, most of the industries that we tend to, to, to service are traditionally the industrial sectors. So these are places that might not have done your traditional e-learning before either. These construction sectors, people who have maybe not been through the standard education pathways, as you say, and have now ended up in construction. And it's, it's a chance to give them a new safe, safe way to, to, to train. And and when we spoke before, you were sort of saying when you started this, um, people thought you were kind of mad, and um, <laughs> you know the 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 low hanging fruit and the easy option would have been just to develop another LMS platform. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like right in the beginning, and then how that's evolved over time as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we started the business back in 2016. Um, for me, as my, my background prior to that was still e-learning, but mostly traditionally e-learning. And as you says, um, before I, I made learning management systems, I'm very much a technologist, being the CTO of the business. Um, so for, for me, I didn't want to then come in and start making new learning management systems for VR. But one of the biggest gaps that we realized was that it was it was necessary. There was no solution in place to actually get content, this VR, this new type of, this new medium, get it to the users in a meaningful way that was as simple as you could do traditionally, where you just enter in a, a URL, open up your LMS, select a course and run it. So there was a big gap there. Um, and so for the first two years, up until about 2018, I just felt as though we were running around saying, yeah, VR is good, trust me, it'll work. But there's some gaps and we need to address it. We need to get it sorted. Um, since then, thankfully, there's now a, a lot of solutions in place that can do it. Um, again, though, because of the, 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 there's already so many learning management systems out there, we didn't want to just go and create another one just for the purpose of doing VR. So what we've ended up building is actually a solution that sort of sits in the middle um, and it facilitates the the, 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 the the connection between the learning management system and the VR training itself. Um, so it's a little bit different. 
And, and what are some of the use cases that, you know, some of your clients, your customers, um, I think I mentioned construction, naval. Mm-hmm. Could you enlighten us as to, you know, yeah. what their problems are and how they're using immersive technology as well? Yes. Um, the industrial sector is, is, is prime for accidents. People are injuring themselves all the time in this space. And VR is, is such a good solution for being able to take away that opportunity to make mistakes or to have these accidents. So it completely reduces the risk. So any sector that involves physical hands-on training with particularly big equipment, expensive equipment, um, it's it's a real easy, it's a no-brainer for you to do it. Um, and it's all very much process-driven as well. So it's all quite straightforward to, to translate from what you do just now into what would you like to do in, in VR. And the cost reductions and benefits tend to be quite immediate as well. We spoke also before, because I know you were really busy with COP26, but also yeah. um, one of the past guests on uh, the Voctech podcast was also uh, the head for neurodiversity at the BBC. And um, I know there are some really interesting applications of VR for sort of empathy building, uh, or sort of soft skills training, um, being empathetic, perhaps for people with um, autism in the workplace and that kind of thing. Have you seen any of those applications? Yeah, yeah, very much so. In fact, um, these are some of my um, personally more interesting applications for VR. Um, as I says, the, the the traditional training stuff is, is really straightforward in terms of the, the process-based training. But when you've got look at the soft skills, um, you really want to have a sort of emotive connection with what you're engaging with. And if you can create a course or a module and you can leave the person who was in it, you can they can come out of it and leave that experience feeling a change internally so it's some sort of internal strife then that is a really uh, successful um, um training application but it's not it's not something that's easy to do um in the case of like uh, autism for example you get to experience perhaps what it's like to be in the in the shoes of somebody with autism going around their day there's a lot of experiences out there that are quite quite serious quite dark but they you really do feel that presence and being in there and that connection to what that person's gone through which otherwise you wouldn't ever been able to experience so it's very very good for 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 giving that emotion fantastic diane let's come over to you um one of the reasons i brought you into the discussion is because you've got this amazing involvement long term with education and educational technology in various guises but also with your current role at Zinc, I think the the approach and the investment thesis um, and and the support for um, founders uh, has many similarities to to UFI Voctech Trust in, tri- in terms of supporting perhaps those who aren't always recognised and 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 thinking about how to actually problem solve rather than uh, just repeat what we've done before. So um, yeah, again, I'd love for you just to share with our listeners, um, you know, your experience in in the last sort of 10-15 years and and then what you're doing currently? Sure so um, and and you mentioned Zinc and our founders so uh, I will I will start there I'm head of talent at Zinc and what we do is pull together um, founders who may be founders or maybe about to become founders from all over the world who care deeply about a mission area and looking at society's challenges and thinking something has to be done, what we're doing isn't good enough, and how do we make that happen? So Zinc focuses on four missions, uh, mental health, those left behind by automation and globalization, longer life, and the environment. And the idea is to pull together people who um, come from all different disciplines, all different walks of life, pre-team, pre-idea. So we're bringing people together on the main 
passion for this mission, and then training them over the course of 12 months, investing in them, investing in their businesses about um, how to build a brand new business. So it's not throwing away everything that exists. But for instance, our mission this year is looking at the mental and emotional health of children and young people. It's looking at the systems. It's looking at education. It's looking at the networks of parents and carers. So the people that are founders within the Zinc community, um, some of them have experience and are serial entrepreneurs. Some are product people. We have a huge chunk of people who are domain experts, school teachers, NHS workers, clinicians, uh, commissioners, professors, researchers looking at what's going on in this space and how can we come together and do something differently. So um, what I liked when I was talking to you about this is that they are coming with a different set of skills on day one, which was two weeks ago. They wear the title of founder and then they build their business up from that, really looking at problems in different ways. yeah, it's so refreshing. It's such a different approach to, you know, then uh, sort of starting with an idea and it's fully fledged and then seeking the funding. And I love, uh, you know, I think we could all learn a lot from from actually just getting interesting people in a room and, and, and sort, of, sort of knocking heads together in that way. And then, you know, supporting the best the best innovations that come out of the back of it. And and when we spoke before, you, you talked also about your uh, prior work in education and then educational te- technology. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that started and, and then your work at Trilogy as well? Sure. So um, my whole career has been in education. It's really been something that's been driving from my own personal background and what I've seen with family and colleagues and the ability of education to open doors. And that's education of all kinds. So I really started to get involved in education technology in 2000 with The New York Times. Uh, where what we did was we built something called the Learning Network, which took stories from the paper that were about to be published the next day, worked overnight to create lesson plans and snippets so that teachers would be able to come into the classroom and speak about with their students um, either in a 15-minute lesson plan or a two-minute exercise so that you could talk about what was happening in the world and feel really comfortable with that. And sometimes it was just daily news, but sometimes it was some really uncomfortable issues. So it was giving teachers, teachers' aides, the the parents even, the tools to be able to do that. And um, I love that that happened overnight, that we were able to try to distribute it and bring that to as many people as possible who had an internet connection who could access that. Uh, I then went on to work at universities at Imperial College and London Business School, really focusing on career development and focusing on um, how do you actually help people go through transition? How do you remove barriers? How do you psychologically get people to think differently about what their capabilities are and what they have the ability to do that other people see? And then look at some of that training to be able to help people. Um, And I got involved in Trilogy Education, which was a US scale-up company that was moving really, really quickly. We did something really interesting, which was say, we need to skill up people on digital skills in the local areas where they want to work. So there's some phenomenal online courses, but they don't necessarily tie directly to the employer situation that's happening in the local area. And the premise behind this was the best way was because we were unknown to partner with somebody that had a brand and those brands were universities. So in the UK, we partnered with the University of Manchester and the University of Birmingham. And the idea was, could we 
um, uh, train people on web development on full stack. Um, I know Andrew's going to talk on cyber. We touched on it a little bit, but I think uh, your program's more advanced than that. But it was about training up with a brand sitting behind you where people trusted it and they recognized it with a very, very strong curriculum. And then also working with local employers to say, what kind of tax stack do you need? What is it that you need for people to have so that you can make this transition? So there were a number of people who were recent graduates in that program. Ages went up to, there was actually unlimited. What we were most excited about was about 25% of the students who came to us had not gone to university. So they were school leavers and they were really facing this big transition so the idea of having a program that they could trust that they could learn from and then there was this employer piece sitting at the end where they knew that the things that they were learning would be applicable in their local area fantastic thank you so much yeah I'd love to come back to you in a little bit as well and, and dig into some of the startups that are coming out of zinc VC that you're you're seeing as well but that there's a few things there the the point of trust around you know new innovations as well and how do you build that in I thought was really interesting but um we'll 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 go to Andrea and then I've got a question as well for Mark that's come in so um Andrea, I think some really interesting points there from Diane around access to, to new skills. And I love what you're doing and I love your founder story as well in particular. So could you share sort of how um, Caps Lock came into being and, and what your main mission is as well? Yeah, sure. Great. Great to see you all, actually. And good morning. <laughs> um, yeah, Caps Lock really came about over a long period of time I think from working within a university I worked as a lecturer for over 16 years and saw the benefits really of education in that environment with some of the rigor and some of the kind of the expertise behind it Um, but also at that point realized it wasn't an option open to everybody a bit like you know others have said around accessibility and opportunity and I think taking environment Uh, moving from there and working in consultancy and industry saw the benefits of training and development in industry too with the flexibility and you know the agility that that brings and caps lock came about really by bringing the best of both both worlds together so that kind of rigor and depth of learning that you can get in a university but the flexibility agility and industry readiness that you would get from working in industry Uh, I guess the whole ethos behind caps lock is its accessibility and that I believe that is still the thing that we are most proud of. Um, Our whole idea was really to remove as many barriers as possible. And I know that's one of the themes of what we're talking about today. So it's how do we make this education as accessible as we possibly can for anybody looking to reskill and move into the cyber industry? And that's at the heart of what we do. with that in mind, that we've removed barriers around financial barriers through using income share agreements, but also really clear about how we've structured our, our learning and our days, the times within it. So we don't start till, for example, it sounds really simple, but we don't start till half nine and we finish at half two. That means anybody with caring responsibilities is able to attend. Or we do evening classes. So if you've got to work, you can fit those those in and, in and around your lifestyle. So I think it was all around that removing of, of barriers, really. That was was key to us. Fantastic. I don't know if it's entirely appropriate, but I do feel I have to share with the listeners that you started this whole thing after uh, having four children as well, which is quite phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, it feels like the birth of a fifth child was caps lock. Uh, I think <laughs> really? it is very much our thing that we're incredibly proud of. So 
<laughs> yeah, and you should be. And um, well, we'll come back to some of your use cases because I'm particularly interested in um, the appetite for reskilling existing employees within some of the employers that you work with into cyber and away from other areas. So, thought that was quite interesting. But um, I must tackle some of these questions that have come in. So, Mark. Um, Got a question here. Would be useful to hear from Mark on the advantages of VR over, say, video for health and safety training. So, what are the particular benefits um, versus video? Yeah. Um, so this this one comes up quite quite often. Um, the, the, as the the obvious um, answer is is that you're actually doing it physically. You're, you're getting hands on experience. So when it comes to this process based training, you've got that muscle memory, so it tends to stick. So it's much more sticky. The actual training itself. But for me, what I find a little bit more interesting, as, as I touched on earlier, is the actual cultural change that you can have. This idea of being able to experience and, and, and empathy within within the, the the training. So, to give you an example, in the construction industry, an, an industry which is traditionally, I would say they don't they don't tell on each other. Um, you know, because you'll see how most construction sites it's been X many days since we've had an incident on site or we've had an accident, and nobody wants to mess with that. Nobody wants to be the person that takes it from four hundred days back down to zero because they cut their thumb. Um, so, in in that industry in particular, and a lot of similar industrial sectors, they're they're, they're scared, they're hesitant to speak out when something happens. But if you force somebody within their training to have a fall off a height, for example, fall off a ladder or experience electrocution or have that oh surprise moment where they didn't expect something to go wrong because they weren't paying attention, you can do that safely and they will fall virtually, of course, um, and, and experience what it's like to, 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 to be in that position, but actually not take any of the risks to it. And what that does is it has this um, strange effect that people in the future, when they go back on site, um, they're more likely to speak up if they see somebody else behaving in a similar way. So if you forgot to attach your PPE or your piece of equipment to your climbing, um, your ladder as you're climbing up it, you see somebody else doing this, you're more likely to stop them and intervene rather than just let it go um, and, and, and say nothing. For me, I think that that's quite a powerful one. I think that's really, really one of the sort of super weapons of virtual reality. The other thing that I find that's quite interesting about it that's came up before is, um, and this is similar to, 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 you were talking about assessment earlier, so this is somewhat related to assessment. And one of our customers, Takeda, asked us to to do a, an assessment of, of, of their clean room, of people putting together the equipment, basically just a bunch of chemistry equipment, and they were to put it together. Um, but when we looked at the data, because it's virtual reality and you can capture literally everything, um, it turns out that they expected people to be putting things in the, the wrong order in terms of connecting the pipes together and the, the wires and fitting all together. They expected that they would be doing it in the wrong order, and that was where the, the focus was from, from the L&D's point of view. But when we looked at the data, it turned out actually what most people, everybody was getting the order correct, but what most people were neglecting was the fact that they were in a clean room and they were dragging these pipes across the ground, and as soon as something touches the ground, it becomes contaminated and it can no longer be used. And if it was real life and it contaminated the solution, that had hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of hmm. effect because the whole thing would have to go to waste. So for me, that's two. One of them is more focused on the sort of data; it's a little bit more interesting. And then the other one's the actual cultural changes. So for me, that to me is more beneficial than sitting watching a video. You, you would never be able to get that in any other way. And then the obvious ones, obviously, the fact that you're getting the experience and the hands-on training and, and doing it physically. So those that's are really the, the interesting. Ones. So it's like the unknown unknowns and, and actually sometimes we're, yeah. we're sort of measuring the wrong things or looking, you know, looking the other way. <laughs> Something interesting exactly. is happening over here. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and actually, just, just to throw it out to everyone, because we've got a question here about 
what the panel had to say on the scalability of VR uh, solutions. But I think if I take that slightly wider as well, how do you see that play out in a, in a broader sense? You can think about VR, but if we think about technology more more broadly, anyone want to jump in? Um, yeah, I, I would say that in terms of technology, I think at the forefront of that is creating accessibility to a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be, be able to access learning. I think it also helps you do some real clever stuff. And for us, it's around being the ability to simulate the real environment, pretty similar to what Mark was saying, really, but in a different context. So I, I guess in terms of learning, if you look back to the 1800s, I know it's a long time ago and before, it, learning was all about a lecturer or a, a learned person standing at the front of a room and reading from a book to a large group of people. Um, and that was done mainly because resource was limited. So you, you had one book and 800 people. How do you share that? Well, one person stands and reads it and 799 of them listen. It was the only way to do things. I think technology has advanced, obviously, in incredible ways. And it facilitates all sorts of different ways to learn which makes it really scalable, but also very accessible. And I guess sometimes that, that learning style doesn't always move alongside that change in technology. So I think industry agility, particularly of small businesses, is great at driving some of that change. So I, I think it's kind of around that accessibility openness and different, just different ways to learn, really. And you gave some examples before of... Um you know, some of those uh, learning experiences where it is very much set in in the workplace. And so you are tackling real challenges that, you know, your BBC or other clients will have to deal with. Could you shine some light on some of those uh, experiences as well and, and, and some of the challenges that your students would have to face? Yeah, sure. I, I guess the key to what we do is all around, prob it's around problem-based learning, which um, helps people look at, well, I guess, rolling it back slightly we learn more when we're doing we learn less when we're listening so I think if we're listening to something we maybe retain five percent of what if we're doing something we're likely to retain 60 plus percent and if we have the opportunity to teach others then we retain 95 percent of what we're learning and so it's not just learning by rote listening to something it's actually getting involved hands-on doing and teaching others so our curriculum is all around team-based learning and problem-based learning so it's problems you would see in industry, like, for example, in a cyber context, how do you deal with joiners, movers and leavers within an organisation? How do you make sure you implement the right kind of technology and that you've got the processes and other things in place to facilitate that? Now, if we were to talk to somebody about that, they would probably listen to some of it. But actually giving learners that problem to solve within a group setting, within a, a company as a case study, when it comes to Windows, they've already been there. You know, they've got that as an example. They can say, actually, I know how to solve that problem because I've already done it. So it's great at developing technical and, and other skills, but it's also incredible at developing what we call impact skills. And I think they're critical to industry, really, that ability to think on your feet, to be a critical thinker, to be an analytical thinker. I think all those things are incredibly important. And a methodology like that is brilliant at building those skills. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and Diane, I'd love to find out a bit more about um, some of your founder builder organisations that have come up. I think we talked about Belvi and, and Uno before. I think those are great examples of setting the workplace and, and problem solving. Sure. And uh, I, I think it, it really fits nicely with the conversation on technology because 
Um, part of what we do is really early on in the process, we go out and we talk to users. So the technology is something that will enable and allow businesses to scale, but it's not necessarily where we start. So just last week, we were in Bristol talking to parents, talking to um, going to schools, talking to university students. And the whole idea is for when you're building a business to get out there as quickly as possible so you're not set behind building something that nobody wants or that nobody would pay for or wouldn't be useful. And I think that's nice when you think about how the technology fits in because sometimes it might be quite simple and sometimes it can be really advanced. So uh, one of the examples that you just mentioned is you know, and you know is really developed to use machine learning and psychometric profiling to help uh, people and employers find a good match where jobs are threatened by robots and automation. And that first started out looking at electricians and construction is now working with data cabling and looking at utility companies, industries that have, as I would say, as almost second careers where people could go and get a bit of training and then actually enter that segment. And the, the front end of that is quite basic. So it's um, really an app where you're testing out things that you like. So me as a user would be asked, do you like to wake up early? Do you care about other people? Do you want to, um, uh, is mess important to you? Or can you function within it? Some really basic questions where I'm seeing a picture and then also there's some text underneath and I either swipe that I agree or I don't agree. So that's actually pretty basic technology. The really interesting piece is the back end in working with the employers and gathering up enough significant data to say, okay, what are some of the personality traits of the people that would make a really nice transition to be trained up to go into data cabling? And what are we seeing there so that it's not based on people's CVs or the experience that they had, but it's based on the potential of what they can do. So I, for, for you know, that's really exciting for industries, uh, tons of difficulty, right? It's harder with electricians that go through a four-year apprentice. It's a little bit easier in some of the others, but trying to reduce those barriers of how people get in and also for the company, how you're looking at what somebody can bring to the organization. You know, also does a lot of work in adult social care as does Belvey. So Belvey was started by looking at healthcare workers. There was a lot of assumptions about healthcare workers that they were doing this job home care that because they couldn't do anything else or they were filling in during time and, and the team went out, the, the founders are Trudy Fell and BLN Pierre and spoke to home care workers who absolutely loved what they did. They loved taking care of people. They had a huge amount of empathy. They wanted to continue doing it. Their biggest challenge was loneliness and not having colleagues and getting caught up in a whole bunch of paperwork and tracking their work by the hour which felt really transactional when they were dealing with people that they really wanted to take care of. So what Bellevue has done is put a fairly basic infrastructure using Slack so that people can communicate using team-based um, organizations. So the team, there'll be a, a group of care workers that can actually organize their rotas themselves. So if one of them needs, can't, needs to step out, they organize who steps in. And that allows them to, and a monthly subscription. So rather than being paid by the hour, they actually get salary. And then the person that's being taken care of is paying by the month. So there's a completely different feel 
to what that experience is like, both on the supply side for care workers and both on the people being taken care of. And the technology will, will get there in terms of how sophisticated that gets on the back end to help the workers. But using Slack is really quite basic to be able to allow the care workers to have a much better experience. Yeah, really interesting. So yeah, don't obsess about sort of technology right at the start necessarily. It's it's kind of what I got from what you're saying is, you know, the importance of speaking to users and then also building that trust as well. Um, and the, the you know example made me think of, um, I think UFI Voctech Trust has a collaboration with um, the Resolution Foundation. And now there's this sort of this idea of worker tech. So, you know, actually using technology, using connections to one another and the transparency that technology allows to put ourselves in a better positions as employees as well. So um, I thought that was a, a great example. Um, Andrea, when we spoke before, we had a conversation around sort of the scale of the skills crisis now being so big that uh, traditional ideas of recruitment and then, you know, people leaving the business and more recruitment don't really stack up anymore. And so reskilling is becoming, you know, uh, um, a sort of burgeoning area. And I just wondered what you're hearing from clients that you work with on, yeah, how they're thinking about employees within their organisation and giving them the confidence to sort of reskill as well. Yeah, yeah, it is a, a crisis. And like you say, kind of looking at your own talent pool is one way to start to address that. I guess we there's a couple of types of organisers, a couple of types of relationships we work with. It might be that an organisation has a particular individual that they think actually they would benefit from going through this training programme. Uh, so they've kind of done that on a one-to-one -one kind of personal basis. Other organisations have a potentially bigger problem and they might have a number of people within their organisation whose roles become redundant and rather than actually letting somebody leave the organisation who has all that background experience who understands the context who understands the business there's an opportunity to look at reskilling those people within the business so actually saying you know we've got this talent pool it already exists it already understands the business can we look at putting the, those people through a program like this um, and reskilling them so that they can come into a different part of the business and work within cyber and um, that's just starting to get a little bit of traction really because for a couple of reasons I think going out into industry in general to look for cyber professionals is tricky there's a shortfall of individuals more generally um, so I, I think it's 10,000 a year unfilled growing year on year so it's difficult to get the skills you need if you've already got talent within a business who understand the business who are loyal to the business then it's great actually to look at that repurposing of of roles and move, moving people into other areas it kind of makes sense and what are some of your favourite uh, learner stories or learner journeys that um, have gone through sort of caps lock as well? Oh, every every learner's my favourite. Yeah, but I, I think some some great stories, really. I think, you know, I talked a bit about removing barriers and one of the biggest barriers people face for getting into uh, training or kind of career change is what they've done in the past. So it's actually, did I get these A-levels? Did I get these GCSEs? Have I got that degree? Have I got that experience? And all these things can actually hold somebody up from moving on with, you know, in a direction they want to go. And that was the biggest barrier we removed. So instead of looking back into somebody's history and saying, do they have the right background for for us to be, or to be able to train or reskill into cyber, it's actually, do they have the potential? So it's taking an individual 
giving them some pre-course opportunities so they can go in, learn a bit about cyber, um, do a number of tasks, write a personal statement about determination. And all those things are more of an indicator of success than did I do an A-level 20 years ago. You know, that is no longer relevant to that individual. And what your choices you made in the past should not, I feel, influence what you're able to do in the future. So I think that was the biggest barrier we tackled. As a result of that, some incredible case studies and stories, really. So people who in the past have been cleaners, taxi drivers, dancers, uh, chefs, police officers, music teachers, midwives, you name it, they've come through this, this program and they have created the most diverse and incredible environment because they're all bringing such different experience and different skill that when you're looking mm. to solve these problems, they've got completely different ways of looking at it. So I, I guess for me, we celebrate every single learner hire, uh, but it's been brilliant to see them. That's really interesting to hear because um, so UFI did this uh, really interesting piece of sort of dialogue with different stakeholders involved in learning technology and support of learners who are developing work-based skills. And one of the things that came out of that in their sort of green paper and white paper was this idea of learner confidence being, you know, something you have to really tackle, understand the background of a learner, what their motivations are before you engage in any um, kind of onward trajectory of, of, of sorts. So sounds like that is a key piece of what you're all working on is 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 gaining that insight of of those users or learners and then how to support them um you know with the work that you're doing but any any thoughts on that and any examples of um you know where that has played out in your own work we've found that confidence is the biggest barrier and especially imposter syndrome and it's everybody who mm. suffers with this i think you know it, it can be somebody with you look at and you think they've got the best background and the most transferable skills and, you know, great opportunity and yet totally suffer with this. So we work incredibly hard at addressing that head on. We talk about imposter syndrome all the time. We do one-to-one coaching. Uh, we've got mentors and support systems. And I think that is the best actually is that through the weeks of the boot camp watch that confidence grow and watch people start to believe in themselves and I, I think it is all around just open up and saying actually I suffer with it too you know so it's not just you don't feel like you should be on your back foot everybody feels like this and let's just speak about it more openly. Mark have you experienced any of that within your own work in terms of who you collaborate with and building that up? Yeah, I mean, we kind of come at it from a slightly different point of view and the barriers that we are sort of trying to remove are more around the enterprise barriers. So we are looking at the sort of the higher level, the stakeholders and the, the C-level to sort of try and get the buy-in to sort of trickle that down to the rest of the organization. That approach isn't always the best and most successful because at the end of the day, it's the learner, the person that's at the bottom is going to get the training. It's the most important person in all of it. And if your training is ineffective, then it's, there's no point. Um and I think that for us, we always encourage people to bring the learner in as early as possible, even if though it is high level. A lot of the, as I said, it's industrial sector, so it tends to be a lot of older generation. People have been doing this for years. And one of the difficult parts that we get is um, they look at VR as a gimmick or as a toy, as a, a console. It's like, why would I need to do this? I've been doing it with my, my hands for years. And 
you know, if I make a mistake, I'll know myself not to do it again in the future because I hurt my thumb, you know, or whatever it may be. But that's just, you know, that's not really the way that the, the technology is going and, and, and training is going to be going going forwards. So it's hard to convince these people. The other side of that is, as um, Andrea, you, you touched on it as well, um, people leaving the company's willing to take all that knowledge with them and that knowledge gets left. So how do you capture that and then put that into one of these virtual experiences or in, in, in any kind of training? It's something that's really difficult and it's a real problem in a lot of industries at the moment. Um, if you look at renewables becoming, you know, the renewable sector is booming. So a lot of people are leaving from the oil and gas industry and moving over to work on turbines, etc. The skills are very, very transferable, um, but it's a very different approach. And because renewables is 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 in some ways a little bit more modern a bit more innovative the training is also does that because the training needs to be done at scale because there's hundreds of thousands of wind turbines all over the country and they're, they're you know they're, they're 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 short of staff to try and get people hmm. to maintain them so they're trying to put people through and upskill them as quickly as possible without actually taking them to the windmills and, and doing it in that regard so it's it's really about changing the attitudes of people the actual learner themselves to to look at a technology as, as a benefit to them rather than a than a gimmick or why they have to do this and you know it, it, it doesn't matter so it's 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 slightly different fantastic um right i'm very conscious of time we've got a few minutes left um some absolutely brilliant insights so thank you all um I'll try and tackle one question very quickly and then we'll just go to sort of final thoughts or resources you'd like to share with everyone listening in on this topic. So I've um, got a question here, how to overcome the possible technology and cost barriers? So I think we've, you know, I suppose there's some cultural resistance to technology you, you've just touched upon, Mark. So any any experience of the cost barriers as well and and, and thoughts on that around training and innovation and use of technology? Yeah, um, quite simply, honestly, in my opinion, technology is just a delivery mechanism. It shouldn't be the focus. Don't do technology for technology's sake. A lot of companies just pick it up because it's, it's a buzzword or it's hot right now, but it doesn't help if it, it's not, not put in place properly. So for me, the most important thing is people and processes. And if you can identify your business case as to where the best place to put your training is, I know that it's an investment by headsets and things like that, but you know, in, in a large company where you have to, your L&D department's got a budget that they have to maintain. They've got so many learning days, training days that it can provide to all the different departments. What you really need to look at is can we maybe reduce one of those training days? That could be the cost of a headset. And it's just, it's just that's, it's all around the business case, to be perfectly honest. Diane, any thoughts on uh, cost barriers? Uh, yeah, and I, I think taking this from two sides. So if I think back to, um, you know, and Lorenz Fisher, who's the co-founder, he really wants to design this for the individuals but um for them the tech has to be fairly low tech so that it feels really accessible and then has to work with the employers and i think with the employers the barriers are not as mark said tech the barriers are hiring on the same indexes on the same points that you always used to hire on and thinking well you have this huge gap with tech but also what Andrea said, there's this huge potential within the workforce. So I would say um, it's uh, what you know has done has surveyed the existing teams that already are there to say these are the capabilities of your existing team. And when you're trying to add to that, it's actually not so much what has to be increased with tech. 
Therefore, the barrier is your own perception of what type of person is doing the electrical work, what type of person can do this. And then the tech can actually support all of them. So I, I guess I would say I'm, I'm less concerned with some of the cost barriers. And then I also think that some of the tech will get there, right? If we think where we are a few years ago, if we build towards what we want to build, and then actually the tech can meet us. I think by the time we change the culture and change how people are thinking, the tech will match up with that. Fantastic. Thank you. Right. I, I think we'll, we'll go over by one minute and I don't think anyone will tell us off. So I'm going to make an executive decision there. Um, in that last minute, then, um, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners or viewers or any resources or people or projects that have influenced your way of thinking in this space? Uh, Mark, I'll uh, pick on you first. Um, yeah, no problem. Um, I know VR is quite an intimidating space to come into but if anybody's looking as you're starting from complete zero you've no idea where to go um i would suggest that you pick up the book by charlie fink it's called the metaverse i know it's a buzzword right now kind of hate it but it's actually a very good book and it covers a lot of and in quite detail as well um but it's still very approachable and it covers a lot of the sort of the where the direction that the industry is probably still going today even though it's quite old it's still good to read fantastic just say the author's name again it's charlie fink Charlie, thank. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Andrea. Yeah, I've got a couple of thoughts, really. One's more generally on cyber. If you're interested in cyber, Capstock has got some great free resource. We've got a free pre-course where you can go and register and spend some time and use any of the resources in there to find out if it's for you. You know, you can you can do that and then leave. It's absolutely fine. So I would say if you're interested in cyber, it's a great first step. More generally, actually, it's a little bit left field, this, but <laughs> I think a book called Invisible Women by Caroline Perez. I think for anybody interested in diversity in the workplace or diversity in society, it does a lot of explaining why it is the way it is. It's non-judgmental. It's not, you know, it's not calling anybody out, but it's actually talking you through history and why we are in the position we're in. And I think the more people who understand why we are where we are, the more addressable it becomes. I would say Invisible Women by Caroline Perez as well. Fantastic. Thank you. And finally, Diane. Sure. Uh, I have invisible women here, Andrea. <laughs> so, uh, it's a great read. And um, I, I wanted to just mention one resource, which is called The Dots, which is a new type of recruitment tool, that new app that looks at teams. And I just think that's interesting when you're thinking about how do people get into different areas. It's really team-based and focused on, and it's, it's designed originally for the creative industry, but spreading out to say your CV may have a whole list of short projects that don't seem like they add up to the skills where you can do a job. But if you've worked on a project with a team member, then you can see kind of this team benefit of who recommends. So I think it's also an interesting model. Uh, the book I, I am I'm kind of taken with these days is called Street Gangs. It's the history of Sesame Street. And it is all about how different diverse people came together, um, uh, television producers and academics and parents and children to create a, a really good educational experience with television. So it kind of speaks to, does the tech have to be so advanced? Can we leverage the technology that already exists? And it was a new way to take advantage of the fact that so many young people were watching television in the early 70s. And could you actually change what they were getting out of that to have more of an educational focus? 
Yeah, I love that one. And um, slice aside, but I very nearly by mistake um, named my children Bert and Ernie. And then I realised what was happening and uh, I stopped that immediately. Um, but there's a, on that subject, there's a great campaign at the moment to, for children who are watching cartoons to turn on subtitles and it increases your reading uh, uh, capacity. Yeah, Ollie so. Barrett is doing lots of work hmm. and it's amazing how much the retention is and how you can actually, um, the language fluidity coming from that turn on the subtitles. Yeah. Love it. So um, all, all the guests here, thank you so much for your time, both in the run up preparing for this and, and today. Um, everyone watching in, thank you for tuning in. And if you're listening back, thank you also. Um, there'll be tons more episodes of the Voxhead podcast to come. And we've got authors who are uh, looking into this space and researchers and uh, many other innovations. So uh, thank you again. Do go and check out uh, the week of Voxhead and the work of all the guests on today's show. And uh, otherwise, have a fantastic week. And thank you very much. Bye-bye. So thank you for listening, everyone. And huge thank you again to my guests. Don't forget that if you enjoyed this episode, you can rate and review wherever you listen in. And, and don't forget also about those free tickets for Reimagine Education Conference if you want to make the most of that. Um, we've got another episode coming up in a few weeks or, which features uh, the Lumina Foundation who are doing some excellent work in terms of uh, mapping credentialing across the US uh, with a view to getting at least 60% of uh, US adults all equipped with a meaningful credential uh, to support their uh, workplace endeavours. Uh, so check out Lumina Foundation and we're also chatting to Lambda um, and Lambda, many of you will know, uh, one of the original uh, coding boot camps based on a uh, income sharing agreement model. Um, so chatting to both of those, it's quite a quick episode, 30 minutes or so, and that will go out uh, the same week as Reimagine Education Conference, which is December the 6th to the 10th again. So until then, have uh, some great times, have a wonderful week and... Um, make sure you're subscribed if you're not already because then you'll get our episodes first so that's all take care listeners bye bye